Hello, and welcome to the second episode of a podcast series featuring the NIDDK's Urologic Diseases in America report. This project has been funded in whole or part with federal funds from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive Kin Kidney Diseases. Join Drs. Brian Malaga, Kathleen Kobashi, and Una Lee as they discuss urinary incontinence findings from the Urologic Diseases in America report. Hello, this is Brian Metlaga. I'd like to introduce you to this installment of the Urological Diseases in America podcast series, uh, graciously hosted by the American Urological Association. In this episode, we'll be reviewing what have we learned regarding urinary incontinence from the Urologic Diseases in America project. And today, we will have joining us two of the investigators that really explore these data in a robust, comprehensive fashion. So I'm pleased to introduce uh, Drs. Una Lee, Dr. Kathleen Kobashi from Virginia Mason Medical Center. Thank you for being here with us today. And I think that one of the first questions that we have about urologic diseases in America with related to urinary incontinence is what are the knowledge gaps in the area of urinary incontinence? And what are the possibilities that an initiative such as the Urologic Diseases in America project can bring to try to fill those gaps? Yeah, well, I think um, this data, looking at this data, has really uh, emphasized that we we need to know what the prevalence of urinary incontinence is. It's, it's uh, obviously a highly prevalent um, condition that really affects patients' quality of life, but also has a tremendous uh, economic impact um, on our system. So I think it's very important to bring that to light so that we can manage the condition in, a, in an effective but um, economically sound way. Um, I think also in looking at the prevalence, we also can, uh, with this data, can look at the um, trends in utilization of the treatment options that we have and over the long term um, really probably can make it a, a difference in how we utilize these um, tools that we have. Yeah, th- thank you, Dr. Kabashi. Um, and so then in previous uh, episode of the Urologic Diseases in America podcast, we reviewed what the different data sources that we have access to are, and their survey instruments such as NHANES, data from CMS regarding the Medicare population, and then you know, we have access to uh, an understanding of data from the working age population with Optum. So what are the benefits of bringing together those data from NHANES, CMS, and Optum? Thank you, Dr. Madlaga, for having us today. Um, these data sets actually each provide a different lens, and they're comprehensive, they're large, um, they're looking either at the population through questionnaires um, and interviews, or the Medicare population, or like you said, this adult insured population. So we're basically looking at the entire lifespan of men and women and the impact of urinary incontinence across the entire population. So it's pretty powerful data, and it's pretty exciting to have all these different viewpoints into this problem. Thank, thank you, Dr. Lee. So what then has the Urologic Diseases in America project showed us about the prevalence of urinary incontinence? Um, very interestingly, um, the annual average annual prevalence of urinary incontinence among women was 53%, and minimal change over the um, time span that we looked at, 2005 to 2016. If you look at the different subtypes, 
16% had mixed incontinence, this is of women, 26% had stress incontinence only, and 10% had urge incontinence only. Um, the prevalence increased with age, although as you can imagine, the, the pattern differed across the different subtypes. So while stress incontinence was high in the 40 to 50 year olds, mixed incontinence was the 60 age, 60 and plus. Um, so while prevalence was high, only a subset of these women had moderate or severe symptoms, and only a subset of these had a major daily impact on their life. So very interesting and very uh, big picture look at prevalence. Yeah, and, and given obviously both of you are very well versed in uh, the field of urinary incontinence, but was anything within those prevalence rates particularly surprising to you? Well, I think in looking at this data, we were surprised that in spite of the aging population, um, the prevalence overall was quite quite stable, quite steady. But I think in really, as uh, Dr. Lee just mentioned, in really dissecting down in each age group, the um, distribution of type of incontinence that patients are, are, or people are experiencing differs. And I think that can help direct our um, our management of this condition. But it was steady in spite of the aging population. And that to us was um, kind of a surprising revelation. And, and then moving from prevalence and, and, you know, kind of on the diagnostic side of the spectrum into the therapeutic side of the spectrum, what did you learn when you looked at the utilization of surgical treatments, especially over the decade-long period that the uh, Urologic Diseases Project studied? So very interestingly, our recent publication looked at surgical trends in urinary incontinence in women, and um, it showed, not surprisingly, that the midurethral sling surgery or sling surgery in general was the most common procedure. And this utilization increased till about 2011, and then it started to decline. Um, it also showed that while suspension procedures were done in the mid, um, in the past, they're really no longer being done. Um, bulking procedures were sort of steady, but still low, and neuromodulation increased, but again, kind of at a low, a low range, so increased over this time period. Um, certainly, the decline in sling is multifactorial, um, but based on its inflection point around 2011, we have to think that it's related to the FD notification um, in 2008 and 2011 on um, the risks of mesh. And then exploring on the, the neuromodulation um, uh, therapy, so in a little more detail, do you think that whether it was introduction of uh, new techniques or technology or how that may have um, uh, played a role in the uh, the evolution of the therapy over the time period studied. Right. So what's interesting is it took a while for neuromodulation to really gain traction. And I actually would anticipate that in the next data set, if we look at the next decade that, you know, start, starting from about 2013 till now, that we're going to see a tremendous growth curve um, regarding neuromodulation. So that's, you know, again, neuromodulation was introduced like in the late, late 90s, and yet it hadn't really gained traction during this decade that we're studying. Um, and yet you, we started to see a little bit of an increase as, as several things occurred that I think really brought neuromodulation onto the forefront. And um, not the least of which was the AUA guidelines on overactive bladder, which has really brought to our attention, you know, a little bit more of a stepwise approach uh, to overactive bladder, and it's really brought that um, that 
successful technique um, into the minds of those of us who treat um, overactive bladder how and urinary incontinence. However, you know, we, we also have another publication that looked at how many patients actually get to third line therapy of which neuromodulation is a big part. And it's a very small percentage. So I think that's one of the big lessons we can see in trends overall um, that, that we're actually not, not even touching, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg that we're touching right now. We have a huge opportunity, um, but I, but I suspect that if we look at the next um, time frame, we're going to see even more growth in in neuromodulation. I would, and I given would that, that. I, oh, oh, sorry, Doctor Maglaga. I just wanted no, no, to no, please, no, please go ahead, Anna. The the um, the uh, neuromodulation was interesting in that there was steady growth in both men and women, but it was still less than um less than one percent yeah, um, of the yeah so very small but it's you know still 0.3.4 percent to 0.8 percent is a growth but it's still less than one percent so um these are i mean i gave those numbers as just examples but it was in that range yeah no that and that's that's incredibly helpful um detail to have and I guess when you look at, you know, urinary incontinence as a whole affects, you know, over half of the female uh, cohort studied, there are these variety of surgical therapies that can be employed, um, then you're able to, by having these claims data, have a, a little deeper understanding of what costs may be associated with these therapies and with just, you know, the sheer prevalence of the condition. What were you able to learn about costs associated with urinary incontinence? Yeah, the cost data was very interesting, and these are expenditures on um, urinary incontinence. And um, one trend that was prevalent throughout all the looks, all the kind of viewpoints that we had was that in this time period, the, um, the costs were moved from inpatient to outpatient procedures. And like I said, that very consistent, and, that, and then that's consistent with what we see um, in real life. Um, there were some, you know, the, the cost in, in expenditures stayed stable over time. Um, but there were some racial differences. So um, there were more expenditures in white women compared to black women, you know, and as we know, there's disparities in um, access and all kinds of things, but that was a consistent finding in both the Medicare data set and the Optum data set. So certainly um, food for future investigation. And actually that showed up in the prevalence data too, um, just different difference in, um, sort of ethnic variations. In the prevalence data, it showed that um, African-American women had higher prevalence of urge incontinence um, compared to white women, and white women had higher rates of, white and other ethnicities had higher rates of stress incontinence um, compared to black women. So that could play into it too. And, and we spent some time now talking about female incontinence, but obviously men are also affected by urinary incontinence. And, and I know that was a part of the work that you did. So what, can you share with us a little bit about what you learned about urinary incontinence in the male population? Yeah, well, this was also very interesting um, in looking at the prevalence in men compared to women. It's much higher in women. Uh, the prevalence of incontinence overall in men was just over 15%. Um, interestingly, however, um, only, you know, 81% of the, of the people uh, described that the urinary incontinence did not affect their daily life. So not only is it less prevalent in men, but it's not seemingly as bothersome to men. 
Um, the other thing is that the type of incontinence that uh, men experience tends to be more in the urgency incontinence rather than the stress incontinence or mixed urinary incontinence. I mean, as you know, stress urinary incontinence in men is most commonly post-prostate surgery. So if they haven't had prostate surgery, it's not it's not common for men to have stress incontinence without having had some intervention uh, or some surgical intervention regarding the prostate, typically. Um, the other thing is that there was an increase in the treatment of men with incontinence in this decade, over the decade, in men over age 65. And it was primarily related to neuromodulation, which is quite interesting. And I think, again, it's the introduction of a new technique or the, a new technique kind of gaining traction. Um, and I think probably that's just related to the fact that that urgency incontinence, which is what neuromodulation is utilized for, is more common in men than the other types of incontinence. Yeah, and so we've spoken a lot uh, about the, the data and the analytics that you did, which was obviously an incredible amount of work. But to shift the focus from those data and those findings to, to you, what, what did each of you, Dr. Lee, Dr. Kobashi, find as you know, kind of the most exciting thing that you learned from, from this project? Well, I would say that, as we mentioned before earlier in this podcast, that we just really haven't even touched this. I and mean, we have a huge body of patients who we have the ability to provide some relief for, uh, assuming that they're bothered. I mean, I think, first of all, it sort of changes the fact that we, it, it, it brings to light the fact that we should really be considering how much the incontinence bothers an individual first and foremost. But in those who are bothered, um, I think that there are a lot of people who we haven't touched. And I think, you know, this high prevalence and yet with such a low, like Una was saying, or Dr. Lee was saying about neuromodulation, we're, all, we're doing less than 1% um, of the population, and yet we know that the prevalence of urgency incontinence is tremendous. And so I think we have a lot of opportunity here to get the word out, sorry about that, and educate, um, you know, educate our uh, colleagues and patients, sorry about that, <laughs> um, and uh, educate our colleagues and patients on the, on the effects that we have things to offer and then really, really get it out there for them. Yeah, and my, um, I agree completely, um, Dr. Kobashi. I think, um, I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting to see these contemporary, comprehensive data sets, and they can inform us on these big trends. And it's interesting because it sometimes validates what we see clinically, and sometimes it makes us think, why? What, what's going on? Can we look deeper into that? What's the next study? How can we, you know, slice and dice that differently? And so I think it's exciting to have big data, but then also look at smaller, more, you know, sort of clinically relevant day-to-day um, -day questions. Yeah, and, and Dr. Lee, building off of that idea of, you know, kind of taking data to the next step, what do you see, you know, for obviously we're speaking to the urologic community today on this podcast, what do you see as the value of the Urologic Diseases in America project to that community? Great question. Um, I think as urologists, it's important to have an overall understanding of urinary incontinence. Um, it affects our patients, it affects our society, it's impactful, and it's a big problem in, in men and women. Um, the prevalence in women was 53%, the prevalence in men was 15%, and certainly not all of them are bothered, but I think that this deeper understanding raises our awareness, so then we can therefore then treat women and men better, I should say, and improve their quality of life. So 
absolutely important for all urologists to, to kind of know this data and understand this data. If I could add one thing, there, there, was a, there was a point in time, I don't know if it's cr true today, but there was a point in time where urinary incontinence was the number one uh, diagnosis for admission to a nursing home facility. Clearly that has, again, economic uh, impact, but it also has social impact. And I think if we can head that off at the pass, that can have a tremendous impact on so many levels for our patients, or, or you know, our our, our people, um, and so this really brings that to light and, and um, emphasizes the importance of urinary incontinence. And, and the data that you were working with for this project are obviously a decade old. It's been several years of analysis. You know, so all the work historically bringing up to present day has been, you know, really a tremendous amount. But then looking forward from today to the future, what would you like to see in future iterations of the urologic diseases in America? You know, are there certain areas within incontinence you'd like to see it addressed in order to really try to further increase and advance our understanding of the epidemiology of this condition? Yeah, well, one thing that we realized, and I guess this is sort of a reflection of the evolution of our thinking, but in this data set, when we were looking at things, for instance, uh, there were some categories that were sort of lumped together that that if we could tease them out, for instance, injection, treat, treatment of incontinence utilizing injection, the urethral bulking injections and Botox or anabotulinum toxin A injections into the bladder were clumped together as one category. Um, why that's a problem, of course, is that bulking agents are for stress incontinence and onobotulinum toxin A injections are for overactive bladder. So we lost the opportunity there to tease out treatment of specific types of incontinence. So I think in the next iteration, we'll analyze it differently. I think the data is there, but some of this is obviously just a reflection of us evolving in our thinking. So, I mean, just little different um, angles on things. I'm sure the data is going to change a lot in this last decade because so much more attention has been put on incontinence as an important entity. Um, and, and our thinking has really changed as a whole also that we're concentrating much more on quality of life issues than we used to say two decades ago. It was really just treating the cancer or treating X, Y, or Z without really taking into effect, uh, taking into account the effects on quality of life and day-to-day -day living. I would agree with what Dr. Rashi said, but I also think that they, um, the next data set will be just more contemporary and it will, rec it will reflect, like there's been a lot of changes in the way people are treating and thinking about urinary incontinence. And I think that um, we can better meet the needs of our patients once we have a, a better understanding of, of these big trends, whether they're surgical trends, economic trends, prevalence trends. Um, I think it's really important, and I'm excited to see the next um, iteration. Absolutely. Great. Well, well, I'd, I would like to just, as we close this uh, podcast, like to thank both of you, Dr. Lee, Dr. Kobashi, for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to, to share with us your insights into what you've learned uh, about urinary incontinence. And I, I think that, you know, as we've seen uh, recently and then going forward, we have a number of publications that will be coming out in the Journal of Urology and other journals that uh, go into a, a much deeper dive uh, into the data, the findings that we spoke about. 
Obviously, there was a number of uh, abstracts that were to be on the program of the 2020 AUA annual meeting, which unfortunately has been uh, canceled due to the COVID-19 concerns. Um, and, and I know that there will be uh, efforts made to take those data and um, disseminate them in, in other fashion uh, as well, and certainly within the, the peer-reviewed literature too. So again, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Lee, Dr. Kabashi, uh, for spending the time with us today. I'd like to, of course, thank the American Neurological Association for providing such a, a robust platform for us to, to share these findings from the Neurologic Diseases in America project. And of course, the project would not be possible without the support of the uh, National Institute for Diabetes, Digestive and uh, Kidney Disease, NIDDK. Um, so uh, again, thank you all for uh, joining us and we hope this was an informative uh, uh, information transfer to everyone. Thank you.